This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today, September 26, 2021, with Professor Nate Ullman. I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, are joining us today. Michael will remain in the background, um, both as he usually does and because his video is not working right today. We're using our webinar format on Zoom, as you're familiar, and running a live stream on Facebook. And, we're, and we are recording this program, important to note. For viewers on Zoom, there is a chat function. We'll be following the chat um, for comments and questions. And Rebecca and I and Nate will try to follow the chat and, and uh, use those comments and questions as they come up. Um, we also have a live feed on Facebook, and we'll try to follow that. A word about our um, about dialogue, the dialogue journal, and our capital campaign. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, "My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jean's vision in the 21st century, we have made the current journal, all 54 years of archived issues, and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series." our podcasts and other features entirely free for online users. This has meant moving away from a subscription model of funding. So we have spent a couple of years figuring out how a digital model will work. We've set a budget and a plan and set out to raise a fund that will secure the future of dialogue. You can find more about our sustaining dialogue campaign fund at uh, givetodialogue.com. And we also have an email address dedicated to this campaign. That address is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. For our lesson today, I'm pleased to introduce Nate Oman. Nathan Oman is the Rollins Professor at William & Mary Law School. In addition to work in the philosophy of private law, he has published articles on law and Mormonism in Dialogue, BYU Studies, Journal of Mormon History, and various law journals. Among his many activities, Nate is a member of the Dialogue Editorial Board. Within the church, he has served in bishoprics, young men's presidencies, and as a regional public affairs director. He's never been a Sunday school teacher until this morning. He lives in Williamsburg, Virginia, where he enjoys fishing unsuccessfully, running slowly, and playing the banjo badly. As with every speaker, we invited Professor Oman today for his personal insights for his own voice, he is not speaking for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is not speaking for the Dialogue Foundation, but for himself. We'll, I'm going to describe the rest of the program all in up front, and, uh, and then we'll proceed. We'll open today with the Spirit of God, a hymn traditionally sung at temple dedications, including at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in 1836. The version we'll hear today, there are many versions, the version we'll hear today was recorded by the Tabernacle Choir in 2014. Our opening prayer will be offered by Suzanne Midori Hanna. Uh, Suzanne was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and has been a clinician, professor, researcher, and author in marriage and family therapy for 40 years. She's currently an adjunct professor for Capella University. As a lifelong subscriber to Dialogue, she maintains a hard copy library to use in her work at the intersection of religion with race, class, violence, LBGTQ plus issues, trauma, and neuroscience. She's taught Sunday school for those who are neurodiverse and has served in various presidencies in Utah, Wisconsin, and Kentucky. She's currently working on a book to guide faith communities toward trauma recovery practices. At the end of the lesson, Becky Reed Linford will offer the closing prayer. Becky is, has, lives in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, DC, except for some periods in Utah, in Rome, in Los Angeles, and in the Midwest. After working for the federal government, she returned to grad school at Georgetown, earning her PhD in history there. She has taught courses in world and colonial US history, as well as medieval and Renaissance Christianity and philosophy, and early modern women and crime. She loves working with young women, playing piano in primary, writing road shows, and directing ward choirs. She and her husband, Kirk, live in Leesburg, Virginia, and have two adult kids. The Linfords have spearheaded the Sunstone Symposiums in Chicago and Washington, 
And Becky has served on Dialogue's editorial board since the 1990s. Um, we'll begin with the music, the Spirit of God, it's the Tabernacle. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come before thee this day and seeking a time to reflect and think more deeply about the restored gospel, about our ancestors who watch over us, about all of those who have helped to make us what we are today in this century. We're grateful for thy wisdom and that of our mother in heaven. And we ask thee to bless us this day that we might remember those who suffer around the world. Help us to know how to mourn and how to comfort in the ways that would be helpful to them. We're also grateful, Father in heaven, for the ways in which thy spirit speaks to us, for the wisdom that we have from you as our elderly parents. And we ask thee to bless our speaker today that he might be blessed with that same wisdom as he provides for us the insights and thoughts that uh, are so welcome and needed in our world today. We ask you to help us to keep our minds open and alive and searching for ways in which we can continue to make the earth a better place to honor those who've come before us and to provide for those who come after. And these things we pray for humbly and in the name of our Savior and our healer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, thank you very much for having me uh, here today. Um, I'm actually outside on my deck because I don't have a good place in my house to do this. So if you hear sort of breezes and birdsong in the background, I'm hoping that that is uh, sort of lovely and charming instead of annoying, but uh, my apologies if it's the latter. So today I wanna talk about um, uh, section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and if you will hang on for just a second. Um, so section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants is the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, which was given on March 27, 1836. And what I want to do, uh, hopefully, uh, if we can get through all this, is uh, I want to talk about three things. So the first thing I want to talk about is the place of the Kirtland Temple and its dedication in, if you will, um, the ministry of Joseph Smith and what um, he was trying to accomplish. I can't claim to be an expert or a scholar about Joseph Smith, and I'm sure there are many knowledgeable people here in the audience who are going to be able to point out all the various things that I'm saying that are, are wrong. Uh, but this is sort of my reading of uh, Joseph Smith's uh, ministry and the place of the Kirtland Temple in that ministry. The second thing I want to talk about is how it is that the um, dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple became scripture. How is it that it ended up in the Doctrine and Covenants we treat it today as scripture? And then the third thing is I want to talk a little bit about uh, the text of the Revelation and some uh, ideas uh, that are present there. Um, so um, I actually have um, a kind of um, almost pessimistic take on the Kirtland Temple. Um, and the basic uh, thesis that I have is that the Kirtland Temple was a kind of second best for Joseph Smith. It was a kind of uh, consolation prize. Um, and to understand why I believe that to be the case, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of arc of Joseph Smith's uh, theology as I see it, uh, and the arc of uh, the experience of the early saints. So when Joseph Smith uh, begins his ministry as a prophet, the question uh, that we might ask is, what was his project? What was it that he was trying to do? Um, and oftentimes um, today we'll say things like, well, he's restoring the church, right? So uh, he was doing this so that I can go to the chapel on Newman Road and, and uh, worship with the Jamestown Ward. Um, and there's obviously truth to that, but I actually think uh, his ambitions were a lot more uh, grandiose. So um, I think that the beginning of Joseph Smith's um, ambitions uh, can be seen in uh, one of the earliest scriptural texts that he produces, 
um, Moses, um, the book of Moses uh, in the Pearl of Great Price. So in Moses chapter seven, we get that vision, uh, that story of Enoch uh, and Enoch's ministry. Um, and in uh, Moses chapter seven, 18 through 28, 21, sorry, the Lord, it says, the Lord called his people Zion because they're of one heart and of one mind and dwelt in righteousness. And Enoch continued his preachiness, preaching in righteousness unto the people of God. And it came to pass that in his day, he built a city, which was called the city of holiness, even Zion. And it came to pass that Enoch talked with the Lord and he said unto the Lord, surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever. But the Lord said unto Enoch, Zion have I blessed, but the residue of the people have I cursed. And it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all of the inhabitants of the earth. And he beheld, and lo, Zion in process of time was taken up into heaven. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, mine abode forever. So Joseph Smith founded a church uh, that we ultimately is named the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and the latter day uh, refers to the fact that these are the last days and we're preparing for uh, the second coming uh, of the Lord. So that idea of a sort of living in apocalyptic time at the end of history uh, where we're preparing for the for the uh, sort of grand winding up, that's super, super common in the 19th century, right? All evangelical Christian Christians think that. Um, so what's striking uh, is um, that Joseph ties up the idea of preparing for the second coming with the idea of building Zion. And today we think of building Zion oftentimes in metaphorical terms right? Um, Zion is the pure in heart. Zion is the church. Zion is about building um, uh, a just and, and decent communities here and now. Um, that's how we theologically interpret it. But we interpret it that way because we're on the far side of a long um, history and set of experiences <clears throat> that led us to that interpretation. Um, I don't think initially that's how Joseph Smith interpreted it at all. So, Oops, hang on. There we go. Um, <clears throat> so with Joseph Smith, we get a second revelation. Um, this revelation is given in um, July of 1831. Okay, and it says, Hearken, O ye, my elders of the church, saith the Lord your God. You have assembled yourselves together according to my commandments in this land, which is the land of Missouri, which is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Wherefore, this is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. And thus saith the Lord your God, if you will receive wisdom, here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now called independence is the center place, and a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. So Joseph Smith's vision of his own ministry was essentially the vision of Enoch. I think it's striking if you look at uh, the original texts of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that were published, um, everybody's names are removed and there are code names. Um, those were ultimately uh, taken out in the modern edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith's codename was Enoch. Um, and I think that what Joseph Smith wanted to do was to do what Enoch did. He wanted to build the city of Zion. He wanted to gather the pure in heart to the city of Zion. And ultimately, he wanted to bring all of those people in the city of Zion into the presence of God and have that city be translated um, um, uh, like the city of uh, Enoch was translated. He wanted to bring all of his people um, uh, into God's presence the way that Enoch did. It's striking that shortly after this revelation was given in August of 1831, he dedicates um, the um, site for the temple in Jackson County. So that Joseph Smith's ambitions and hopes were centered in Zion and the building of Zion. And for him, that meant the building of a city in Jackson County, Missouri, centered on a temple, and that that was going to be the place where uh, the saints uh, came together and they realized um, his vision of Zion um, and ultimately the, be prepared for the second coming and come into the presence of God. That's 
what Joseph Smith wanted to do. Now, life intervened. So um, the saints begin uh, building their settlement in Jackson County in 1831, um, and things start going badly. Um, there's conflict with their neighbors. Uh, the sources of that obviously are complicated, um, but they've got conflict in their neighbors, uh, with their neighbors. Uh, ultimately, mobs attack um, uh, the saints in Jackson County. And on July 23rd, 1833, um, the leaders of the church in Missouri uh, sign an agreement with the Missouri mob um, in which they agree that the saints will vacate uh, Jackson County um, and, and leave the county and they move uh, north um, uh, in uh, Missouri. Um, so this represents the failure of Joseph Smith's vision. Um, the location of Zion was um, incredibly important. Um, um, the, um, um, what it meant to build Zion was to build that settlement, that city in Jackson County. And by July of 1833, uh, it's, it's not going to be possible to build that settlement in Jackson County, uh, Missouri. Now, um, strikingly, July 23rd, 1833, that day that the, the leaders of the church in Missouri um, sign the agreement with the mob that they're going to leave Jackson County, is also the day on which the cornerstones are laid for the Kirtland Temple. Now, obviously, at the time that the Kirtland Temple uh, stone, cornerstones were being laid, uh, Joseph Smith and the members of the church in Kirtland were unaware of that agreement in Jackson of the saints in Jackson County. They were aware that there was conflict um, uh, in Jackson County. So the Kirtland Temple is being begun literally at the moment at which the saints experiment in Jackson County definitively fails. Um, and that, that um, original vision that Joseph Smith had for building Zion um, has to be put on hold, that that's not going to be what is going to happen. So, um, the saints go forward with building uh, the Kirtland Temple. And there's almost a kind of desperation, I think, in the building of the Kirtland Temple. Um, and here I'm, I'm speculating, I can't point to some magical document in the Joseph Smith Papers Project that makes this point. Um, but as I read the history, there's this sense in which Joseph Smith um, thinks, you know, can't control what's happening in Missouri, but we can build the house of the Lord here uh, in Kirtland. Um, and so um, a lot of the energy that was uh, initially had been poured into that hope of building Jackson County, uh, Missouri design gets um, poured into uh, building the temple uh, in Kirtland. Um, and that actually uh, stretches the church enormously. Um, I think there's a reasonable uh, argument to be made is that the Kirtland temple kind of broke the Kirtland economy in some ways uh, and led to a lot of the problems uh, with the Kirtland Safety Society and the acrimony from that that ultimately caused Joseph Smith and the other leaders of the church to flee Kirtland. Uh, the church um, uh, went into an enormous amount of debt uh, in order to build the Kirtland, um, in order to build the Kirtland Temple. I should pause at this point and say that just because of the format, I'm doing a lot of talking. Um, but uh, if you've got comments or questions, please put those in the chat. Um, and I'm going to try and make an effort to sort of pause periodically and make sure that I'm, I'm keeping in touch uh, with those questions in those chats. So um, we go forward with the building of the Kirtland Temple, which begins in July of 1833. By March of 1836, the building is completed. Um, and um, Joseph um, uh, and the other leaders of the church in um, is um, um, decide that they're going to have a, a big dedication of of the um, of the Kirtland Temple. Okay, so um, the Kirtland Temple uh, dedication takes place on. Um, 
uh, March 27th, 1837, or 1836, sorry. Um, and um, if you look at the record of the Kirtland Temple dedication, uh, which is available in the uh, Joseph Smith Papers Project. The minutes of uh, the conference were uh, published in um, uh, the Evening and Morning Star. Um, uh, you can look through, um, uh, and I think you can see within um, the record of those dedicatory um, ceremonies, you can see this... Um, real sense of trying to, to um, get back to Zion or to get back to that vision of Enoch through the process of the temple itself. So one of the things, for example, that strikes out is that there's an enormous amount of music um, at the temple dedication and all of the, um, the lyrics of the hymns that were sung are in uh, the minutes. Uh, the dedicatory ceremonies lasted a long time, something like seven hours um, that people were crammed into uh, the temple, seven hours in which they had one break of um, about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so um, I just wanna look at uh, some of the lyrics in the songs that were sung. And I think you'll see here um, that uh, in building the temple, there's still this longing that they're gonna build Zion. So uh, the opening hymn contains these lyrics. Um, Lift up your heads, ye saints in peace. The savior comes for your release. The day of the redeemed has come. The saint shall be welcomed home. Behold the church, it soars on high to meet the saints amid the sky, to hail the king in clouds of fire and strike the tune, the mortal lyre. Hosanna, now the trump shall sound, proclaim the joys of heaven round when all the saints together join in songs of love and all divine. With Enoch here, we all shall meet and worship at Messiah's feet, unite our hands and hearts in love and reign on thrones with Christ above. Right, so the image here, right, of the church, the church soars on high to meet the saints. This is the is imagery about um, the translation of the city of Zion that we see in um, um, the the um, um, book of Moses. Okay, um, look at uh, another lyrics in the hymn. This is from this um, uh, song at on Diamond, which was sung there. We read that Enoch walked with God above the power of mammon, while Zion spread herself abroad, and the saints and angels sung aloud in Adam on Diamond. Um, another hymn. How pleased and blessed was I to hear the people cry, come let us seek our God today. And yes, with cheerful zeal, we haste to Zion's hill, and there our vows and honors pay. Zion, thrice happy place, adorned with wondrous grace and walls of strength embrace and round in threes our tribes appear to pray and praise and hear the sacred gospel's joyful sound so um, um, we get um, uh, more zion imagery and then of course we get the spirit of god like a fire is burning which is the marvelous hymn that we uh, started with um, interestingly the um, the um, Inspiration for the lyrics of this were probably um, actually not taken from a hymn, um, at least according uh, to Michael Hicks. W.W. Um, uh, Phelps's inspiration from this seems to have been a song called The American Star, uh, which was actually a kind of patriotic song that was popular uh, in uh, the United States after the War of 1812. And it's all about uh, the spirit of America marching forth um, and uh, the nation defending itself against its, its, um, um, its enemies. And so um, at, at least one way in which you'd read the spirit of God is that the spirit of God is a kind of uh, national anthem uh, for the saints. Um, and then uh, um, that national anthem, instead of being about America, turns out is about, um, about Zion. Um, and in particular, right, that final verse uh, that we heard. Um, How blessed the day when the lamb and the lion shall lie down together without any ire, and Ephraim be crowned with his blessings in Zion, and Jesus descends with his chariot of fire. Um, so the, um, um, 
the hope is that um, the temple can be Zion. And what does Zion mean if we read it through uh, Moses chapter seven? What Zion means is it's the place where the saints gather together and are brought into the presence of God. Um, and I think that the hope that Joseph had in the temple dedication was that um, the saints would be brought into the presence of God in the temple. So if you look at the temple uh, dedicatory prayer, um, in verse 36, it says, um, let it be fulfilled upon them, that is upon uh, the Lord's servants in the temple. Let it be fulfilled upon them as upon those on the day of Pentecost. Let the gift of tongues be poured out upon thy people, even cloven tongues as of fire and the interpretation thereof. At the uh, conclusion, after that temple had been, after that um, um, prayer had been given, um, uh, and at the very end of the dedicatory services, they had the Hosanna shout. Um, and this is what the minutes from the conference say. Um, after the closing prayer, there was a loud acclamation of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to God and the land, Lamb. Amen, amen, and amen. Three times. And then you get this in the minutes. Elder Brigham Young, one of the 12, gave a short address in tongues, and Elder David W. Patton interpreted and gave a short exhortation in tongues himself, which apparently nobody translated. Um, kind of wonder, like, how did he know it was an exhortation? Um, after which, President Joseph Smith Jr. blessed the congregation in the name, name of the Lord. Now, there are lots of stories of the sort of Pentecostal outpouring at the Kirtland uh, Temple dedication. And a lot of those are retrospective uh, stories. So um, what was happening at the time uh, may be different than those stories. But at the time, for example, Frederick G. Williams did record at the time that during the dedicatory prayer, he saw uh, an angel enter the um, <clears throat> Uh, temple. And then a week later, uh, um, while uh, a service is, is taking place in the temple, uh, and the veil is dropped in front of uh, the pulpits, so the temple could be divided up by these big curtains uh, that would sort of break it up into smaller uh, rooms, um, that uh, we get the vision that's recorded in Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 110, uh, where uh, Jesus appears to um, um, uh, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. So what do we get? We get Pentecost, you know, people speaking in tongues. We get visions of angels and of Jesus. But what we don't get is the translation of the saints. God does not um, uh, pick up Zion and take it up into heaven. And even the Pentecost, I can't help but thinking that for Joseph Smith was sort of a second best kind of spiritual outpouring. Um, and why do I say that? So when Joseph Smith first came to uh, Ohio, um, uh, the, the folks that had joined the church in Ohio uh, were deeply involved in uh, really um, sort of extreme Pentecostalism. So lots of speaking in tongues and uh, sort of really violent and dramatic uh, spiritual um, uh, experiences. And I think it's pretty clear that Joseph Smith wasn't really all that comfortable with all of this stuff. Um, and so uh, speaking of tongues is, is a miraculous thing. It was something that would have been, he would have acknowledged and celebrated, um, but also would have been just a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, so what do we get in the temple? We get um, a replacement for Zion, the Zion of the city that's caught up to meet God but it's a kind of second best kind of replacement. I wanna stop here and see if there are any of these comments. Um, we've got one question about um, um, the um, Kirtland temple, the Kirtland economy. And uh, why do I think uh, the temple uh, collapsed? I think part of it is, is the temple was, as I understand it, was that the Kirtland Safety Society um, was um, uh, used uh, to issue at least part of the debt that was used to pay uh, for uh, the, the Kirtland uh, temple. There's lots of th other things that are going on in the Kirtland uh, economy uh, at the time. Uh, so I don't want to say that the temple is the only thing uh, that's driving it. 
but there was an enormous amount of debt that was generated uh, to um, um, build the temple. And ultimately, the Kirtland economy wasn't able to support the repayment of all of that debt. Okay. Um, okay. Those are two different things, but they're not. So, um, oh, actually. <laughs> so, um, what do we get if we think about the Kirtland Temple as a um, as a sort of second best to uh, uh, the Zion, uh, the creation of the um, uh, uh, Zion that's going to be translated up um, the way that Enix Zion is translated up. So in the Kirtland Temple, I think what Joseph Smith is trying to do is build, bring the saints into the presence of God. And he's trying to bring the saints into the presence of God through uh, sort of Pentecostal experience and through visions, right? And that's going to be the way that uh, people are brought into the into uh, the presence of God. It is uh, interesting, at least the Joseph Smith Papers project suggests that the Kirtland Temple doesn't really start getting called a temple uh, until after uh, Jesus appears uh, in um, April of 1836, that before then it was called the House of the Lord. Um, and then when that vision uh, happened, that, that was seen as being a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus shall suddenly come to his temple. Uh, and that then made the Kirtland temple into a temple. Um, or at least that's what some of the Joseph Smith Papers Project commentary suggests. Um, temples continue to be places that we associate, I think, with um, uh, profound spiritual experiences. We associate them with visions. Uh, the sort of famous stories about Lorenzo Snow's vision of the Savior in the Salt Lake Temple or something like that. But temples are also places uh, where we perform rituals. Now, obviously, the Kirtland Temple had nothing like uh, the rituals that are associated today with temples. Um, but we do see in the T Kirtland Temple the beginnings of those um, uh, rituals. Um, so among other things, in the... Um, version of the spirit of God that was sung at the temple, uh, Kirtland temple dedication, there are some verses that are not contained in um, the version that we sing, including this version. We'll wash and be washed with, and with oil be anointed, with all not omitting the washing of feet. For he that receiveth his penny appointed must surely be clean at the harvest of wheat. We'll sing and we'll shout, etc., etc. Right, so this is a reference to um, the the washings and anointings uh, ceremonies that were conducted in the Kirtland Temple. And then later, of course, we get uh, the more elaborate rituals uh, that are associated with the Kirtland Temple or the Nauvoo Temple and the modern temple. What happens in those rituals? Um, we gather together as a group. Um, and as we gather together in a group, we try to progress and become uh, better, more like uh, the Lord. Now, this is all happening in a highly formalized ritual, right? We make covenants, we advance forth, and then ultimately uh, we go through the veil to the celestial kingdom and come into the presence of God. So one way of thinking about what the temple is, is the temple is Moses chapter 7. It's Enoch bringing, bringing Zion into the presence of God through the translation of the city. But this is done now through a ritual. And um, in that sense, the temple points towards something, right? Um, it points towards um, the experience of Enoch, uh, which has been transformed from a real imminent literal expectation right, which is, I think, what Joseph Smith had in mind in 1831 and 1832. Um, and that um, gets transformed into a set of sacred rituals. So there's a sense in which what is going on in the temples is profoundly related to um, the building of, of, of Zion. Uh, it is a kind of second best Zion that we have until we wait um, uh, for the um, uh, final fulfillment of uh, the Lord's prophecies. Okay. Um,
Let's talk a little bit about how the dedicatory prayer became scripture. So a few days before uh, the temple dedication, Joseph Smith sat down um, and prepared um, um, this uh, prayer. Uh, he was probably assisted by Oliver Cowdery. So Oliver Cowdery probably wrote uh, part of it. Um, and then after they had written the prayer out, they actually had it typeset. Um, and a version of the prayer was printed out as a broadside. This, that's the picture on your screen. Um, and that's the broadside from which Joseph Smith read the prayer at the dedicatory service. Um, the prayer was then published in church newspapers. Now, what's interesting is that in Joseph Smith's lifetime, the prayer was never included in the Doctrine and Covenants. So the original version of the Doctrine and Covenants is published in 1835. Now, obviously, the, the dedicatory prayer is not going to be in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants because it wasn't written until 1836. Um, however, uh, there was a second edition of the Doctrine and Covenants that was prepared or at least begun during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Um, so, of course, what happens is in 1835, you get the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's got the revelations up till that time, and then the revelations keep coming. There aren't as many of them uh, as there were in the early history of the church. Joseph Smith uh, started uh, uh, teaching in different ways and, and um, um, pursuing his ministry in different ways than just um, producing written revelations, but there continue to be written revelations after 1835. Uh, even though uh, there were other things that Joseph was doing, like giving sermons or um, creating rituals and things like that. Um, so in Nauvoo, um, people are discussing this. They're realizing that the Doctrine and Covenants is getting a little bit out of date. And there's this suggestion they pr should produce another edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in that ed second edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, they add some additional revelations. Now, at the time of Joseph Smith's um, murder in June of 1844, that project is not yet complete. They're sort of in the middle of producing that edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Interestingly, um, Joseph does not add the prayer of the Kirtland um, uh, dedicatory prayer to the Doctrine and Covenants at that time. So in Joseph Smith's lifetime, this was never considered scripture. Um, at least it was never formally uh, canonized or included in any of the books of the scripture. So when does it show up uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants? So in 1874, um, towards the end of his life, Brigham Young tasked Orson Pratt, who at the time was church historian, with producing a new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, uh, the, uh, up until that time, the edition that people had been using uh, was the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And Orson Pratt does a bunch of things uh, to the Doctrine and Covenants uh, that are really important for the book of scripture that we have uh, today. So the first thing that he does is he completely reorders the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. So the 1835 and 1844 Doctrine and Covenants were organized more or less um, kind of topically. The best way to think about uh, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, I believe, is that the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants was um, a kind of a legal text. It was supposed to set out what are the controlling commandments and rules that govern the church? So for example, after what is today Doctrine and Covenant section one, which is the, the introduction that was prepared for the 1835 edition, the first section or the second section that appears is what is today Doctrine and Covenant section 20, which of course is the big governing uh, document for the church. Thereafter, um, what followed are all of Joseph Smith's revelations on priesthood that explain how it is that the priesthood structure uh, works. So it's, the way, one way of thinking about the Doctrine of Covenant is it's like the sort of church handbook um, that sort of tells you here are the rules that currently are uh, governing uh, the church. In 1874, uh, Orson Pratt reorganizes the Doctrine and Covenants. And one of the things he does is he rearranges the order of the revelation so they're all in chronological order or more or less in chronological order. He messes a few things up and gets them out of order. But he clearly is reorganizing the Doctrine and Covenants so it's in chronological order. What does that do? It implicitly changes the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants stops being a legal, 
uh, document, uh, a sort of rule book, and it becomes sacred history. Um, and now the history is oftentimes implicit, right? We've got to figure out what are the stories that are behind these revelations because the revelations don't contain narratives. Um, but for Orson Pratt, we're implicitly telling the story of the restoration in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, the other big thing that Orson Pratt does with the Doctrine and Covenants is he adds numerous sections to the Doctrine and Covenants. So there's numerous material that had not been included by Joseph Smith that is included by Orson Pratt in the 1870s. Um, what is he doing with these uh, new sections? Basically, he's filling out the rest of the story of uh, the Restoration. So he's arranged it in chronological order. It's become sacred history, and he wants to include the highlights of that sacred history. And it's at that point that the Kirtland Temple dedication comes into the Doctrine and Covenants as scripture. Um, he does, Orson Pratt does other things. So, for example, all of the verses that we currently have in the Doctrine and Covenants were all put there by Orson Pratt between 1874 and 1876. So, that version of the Doctrine and Covenants is then published in 1876. Um, and then, oddly, they forget to present it to the church. Um, uh, to be uh, ratified. So it's actually not formally accepted by a vote of the church, the new edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, until 1880. Um, but that's um, how um, the um, temple dedication becomes uh, part of the Doctrine and Covenant. And here I'm just speculating. I'm completely speculating. I think Joseph Smith doesn't include it as scripture um, in part because he doesn't see it as... Um, so in part, it's not included in scripture because the Doctrine and Covenants is seen as a kind of like a manual or a, or a legal text. Um, but I also wonder if part of the reason it wasn't uh, included is because the Kirtland Temple is sort of a second best, right? It's, it is a, a second best uh, kind of uh, Zion. Um, and uh, for us now, um, it becomes this important part of our sacred history, and we take the, the Doctrine and Covenants as sort of being the scripture of that sacred history. But that's not how Joseph Smith thought about the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, that's Orson Pratt's thinking about um, the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, so I want to um, now take a little bit of time and look just at the text of this revelation. But first, let's stop. Uh, let me... Nate, as you, as you look at these... I'm, I'm trying to look to see if these, the questions are... are, are Chris, uh, have you sort of digested some of these for me? Yes, I, 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 I digested is too much, but um, yes, read them. The idea of, of the temple being a second best um, and the shifting sense of Zion, of, from city to temple to a, a, a more modern um, um, gathering of believers, I suppose. Uh, uh, the, that's intriguing, and there are a number of questions and thoughts about this. Um, really think about or, or, or would you address the the idea of second best um, we're used to we're used to talking about the temple as a as a as a, a an apex of a, a prime uh, experience and the, you're talking about it as a second best Zion is uh, is interesting and challenging um, but it also, as, as Russell Fox says here, it, we don't get to live there. And so um, in that sense, it's a, it's a step away from the world into a place where everybody is working together in unison, um, but it's also for a short period of time. Um, so uh, what do I mean when I say it's a second best? I, I think it's a second best if we take Moses chapter seven, literally, that when Moses chapter seven is describing Zion, I'm sorry about the dog barking in the background. When Moses chapter seven is describing Zion, it's not describing like a metaphor for Zion. It's describing what Zion is, is Zion is a city of the pure in heart uh, where people are so righteous that they are caught up to live with God. Um, and that that's, um, I, I think, 
one way of thinking about what does it mean when we say that the temple is second best is to say that, you know, maybe we're a little bit too easy on ourselves when it comes to building Zion, that it, it's, um, it really is this um, uh, incredibly kind of ambitious cosmic proce process, uh, project. Okay. Um, the point that we don't, um, that when we go to the temple, um, we're not going to the temple with the people in our wards or communities, uh, that we're, we're kind of going through the temple as that, um, you know, as a temple company, not as necessarily uh, as a ward uh, or some other community that we sort of live in full time. I don't know. I'd have to think more about that. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting point. One thing it seems to me that the, the modern temple does, and certainly much more than the Kirtland temple did, um, is the everything about the modern temple is designed to make it sort of discontinuous with the rest of our lives. Uh, when you go to the modern temple, it's it's intentionally designed to be strange, to throw you throw you out of of um, uh, your life. Um, and sort of throw you towards God and towards uh, heaven and the celestial kingdom. And I think that's part of what Zion is supposed to do, right? Is Zion is, is something where uh, we're trying to sort of uh, get thrown out of, of, of our lives. So one part of the question that, um, that uh, I think Randall Paul uh, posed was, uh, you know, thinking about the temple as temporary, you know, not the be all end all, but something that is just designed to get us to point toward Zion and a little bit of disconnect, well, maybe not a little bit, the disconnect between um, how it's become exclusionary rather than inclusive and what the goal um, of Zion actually is. Uh, you know, I think you're, um, know how you're presenting this history and the evolution helps us to kind of think about that and ask questions about uh, how we ourselves are thinking about the temple and and what it's about and what that experience is yeah i mean it's, it is interesting right that the temple becomes exclusionary you've got to have a recommend it, it becomes more difficult to get into the temple um it um uh, certainly much more difficult to get into than it was to get into, say, the Kirtland Temple. Um, it was difficult to get into Zion, as I understand it. So, um, like, you had to have special permission to go up to Zion. And if you didn't get that commission, permission to go up to Zion, um, you could be in trouble. I, 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 um, I may have the history wrong here, but I don't think so. Um, so at least that uh, Zion, um, as it was envisioned in Jackson County, was in some sense exclusionary. It seems to me is that the thing that the temple does that's exclusionary is it makes the temple into a sort of sacred and terrible space. Um, at terrible in a in a in a sort of um, trembling before the awe of God kind of space. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with ways in which. Uh, the temple experience is made to be uh, very different than the experience of the world. Um, and one way of doing that uh, is to create taboos around it. Um, uh, and the, um, even the original word sacred um, goes back to Latin words, uh, meaning to, to cut or separate um, off from. So uh, we oftentimes, I think, talk about the temple in terms of worthiness, like it's kind of, um, it's like a gold star you get for, getting, for being good. Um, um, I, I, I think that that's, there's some real spiritual dangers in thinking about the temple that way, but I, I, I do like the idea of it being like, um, a, a hard space to get into because that's part of what makes it different and separate from the space that we're in now. Um, okay. I've got, there's a, there's another direction here that is interesting to, to yeah. think about, talk about, I, if you go back to start at Jackson County, Missouri in Zion, then the Kirtland Temple. Um, later we have Nauvoo, of course, where it looks like building a city again. Um, the, the concept of, of uh, periods of time of different, um, almost a dispensation or, or a, a, a cycle, um, where there is a time of building a city and there's a time of building a temple and there's a time of 
if you move forward in, in LDS history, in particular, a time of gathering and a time of building, I mean, you could say we are in a period now of building temples all over the world. And uh, you know, with, with a dozen announced every conference, that this is a, a temple period of time. Um, I, I throw it out there. What do you think about that? Uh, I think there's there's some truth to that. I mean, from the very beginning, building Zion gets associated with building temples, right? So the 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 revelation that announces the location of Zion announces that there's going to be a temple there, um, and in some sense, I I think part of what um, uh, we see over the course of of church history is sort of like figuring out, okay, we know it's really important to build a temple. What are we supposed to do with it? Um, and, um, it's, it's, it's done different purposes. So the Kirtland temple is clearly the rituals in the Kirtland temple are clearly very different than the rituals in the Nauvoo temple or the temple they are today. But even if we think about the modern temple rituals, the way in which temples have operated within sort of LDS devotional life have changed over time. Right. So we've gone from a situation where, um, you know, maybe you go to the temple once in your life or a few times in your life um, to this idea that that temple worship is supposed to be a sort of integral and regular part of living a faithful Latter-day Saint life. And that I do think is something that is sort of relatively new, as I understand it, um, uh, that, um, you know, the temple is a place you're supposed to go to often, um, which I don't think was the, the case necessarily throughout our history. Um, we don't have a lot of time. I do want to note just a couple of things about the text of the Revelation, and then uh, we can be done. So the first thing that I noticed about the text of the Revelation is that um, big chunks of it are actually copied. So if you look at the, at the beginning of um, the Revelation, say verses 7 through 9 or 10, um, those are basically taken almost verbatim from section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was the so-called olive leaf revelation. And what's interesting is that they are references to the school of the prophets. So the temple gets associated with the school of the prophets and it gets associated uh, with uh, the idea of learning. Um, and so you get this language in, in verse eight, organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of order, a house of God. These are all, this is all language that's drawn verbatim from section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and the School of Prophets, which was initially held in Newell K. Whitney's store, not in the temple. Uh, one of the interesting things that is uh, in there is verse nine says that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, and that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the most high God. So I think that that's actually a reference to ritual. Uh, so it's another place in which this sort of emerging idea of temple rituals show up. So what's the ritual um, that is uh, being referenced there? At the end of section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenant, it talks about the greeting that people are supposed to make to one another uh, as they enter into the school of the prophets. And it's this very ritualized greeting. Okay, so this is section 88, 132 and 133. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a token in remembrance of an everlasting covenant in which covenant I receive you in fellowship as a determination that is fixed, immovable and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God and the bonds of love and to walk in all commandments of the God blameless in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. So we have associated here with the temple and this reference to greeting, I think, is this sort of ritualized covenant of uh, friendship, which I think is interesting to think about if you think of the temple as a sort of microcosm or second best version of uh, Enoch's Zion and the sort of centrality of learning and friendship to that. The other thing that you get in um, the um, uh, revelation, I think, is a, a real um, um, a real sense of, of asking God, what's gone wrong? Why have you um, forsaken me? So we associate this most um, 
commonly with sections 120 and 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which are taken from that great letter that Joseph Smith wrote to the saints from Liberty Jail. Um, but I think you see a sort of earlier version of that um, in the temple dedication. And in particular, it's clear that the situation of the loss of Jackson County is weighing very, very heavily on uh, Joseph and presumably Oliver's minds as they're writing this. So in verse 49, O Lord, how long wilt thou suffer this people to bear this affliction and the cries of their innocent ones to ascend up unto their thrones and their blood come up in testimony before thee and not make a display of thy testimony in their behalf. Um, and so uh, uh, this is getting associated with, I think, that same sort of asking, um, where art thou, Lord? The final thing that I think is striking is that politics in the Constitution makes an uh, appearance in the temple um, dedicatory prayer. So in verse 54, have mercy, O Lord, upon all the nations of the earth and have mercy upon the rulers of our land. And may those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the Constitution of our land by our fathers be established for other, ever. So um, Richard Bushman makes this point that um, after the saints are expelled from Jackson County, Missouri, the way in which Latter-day Saints talk about the world shifts subtly. So before um, Jackson County, the world is divided up into either converts who come to Zion or the wicked who reject Zion and will be burned at the last days. When the saints are expelled from Jackson County, there is um, an outpouring of um, disgust um, uh, from non-Mormons who saw the treatment of the Latter-day Saints as being uh, unconscionable. And the Mormons uh, and Joseph Smith come up with this realization that it's possible to have friends um, in uh, the world, people who aren't converts and aren't enemies, but are just friends. Um, and um, one of the ways in which they think about how is it that we as Latter-day Saints relate to these people who are friends um, is they talk about the Constitution. Um, and that sort of becomes this uh, common ground between the Latter-day Saints uh, and their friends. Um, and it seems to me is that this is pointing to something about uh, the temple and about Zion, which is that it's sort of caught halfway between earth and heaven. Um, and the language of this uh, dedicatory prayer is kind of caught halfway between earth and heaven, that we want Zion to be caught up uh, to live with Jesus, but we're not there that yet. We're still living here um, uh, in the world where things like uh, the constitution uh, matter. And I guess, I think you could say that that's part of, of building Zion, is that building Zion is what it means when you're caught uh, in that space um, between uh, earth and the heaven that you're trying to get to. Okay, so we are out of time. Um, thank you very much for uh, letting me uh, join you today. Um, I will just close with my testimony that um, I love um, the gospel and the scriptures. Um, and I have a testimony of the restoration, and I'm glad I've been able to share these things with you today. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you, Nate. And uh, thank you, everybody, for participating and, and with us today. Um, I regretfully, uh, Becky Reed Linford, who was expected to say the closing prayer, is at... Um, urgent care with her son and uh, not, not with us today. So I've asked, I've asked Linda Hoffman Kimball to offer the closing prayer and I will, I will shift my seat so she can show up on the screen. Our dear gracious and compassionate God, we thank thee for this time we've had together to hear Nate's uh, wisdom and organization and perspective on these rich texts we have today. We ask for thy blessing on each of us in the struggles that we face to live this uh, rich and disturbing life we've been given. And we pray that we might feel the comfort and consolation and encouragement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.